In the 1970s and 80s, the use of a telephone or credit card could have been, and probably was, recorded and saved in an international database called Echelon. Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This is the second part of a two-part series on international spying recorded in 1999 with Mike Frost, author of Spy World, Inside the Canadian and American Intelligence Establishments. We talked about Echelon, the code name given to the capability to intercept all of the world's communications all of the time. Mike Frost worked for over 30 years as a spy for the American and Canadian governments. His book describes many of his experiences and was written because he felt that the privacy rights of innocent people were then regularly violated. I spoke with Mike Frost in April of 1999 from his home near Ottawa, Canada, and asked him to tell us about Echelon. capability of intercepting everything, Barry, from from we call it DC to light, which is the lowest frequency to the highest frequency. Everything. Everything. Yeah. And then they go into supercomputers and pull out what they want. Now, this is up and running now, and it, the, the privacy implications are just horrendous. And it, it's catching on uh, a lot in Australia, in Europe, in Great Britain. I just uh, taped a, a fairly lengthy interview with the BBC. Uh, the chap from Australia flew over here and uh, spoke to me for a day and a half. And that story is going to air on the 5th of April in Australia. No, that's, um, that's Easter Monday. I think it's the 6th. It's going to air then next week in Australia. It is a, it is a, a very... Uh, how, how can I put it that it's not going to sound as if I'm um, imagining things, but the potential of this organization, this thing, Echelon, is just horrendous, and I think that people should be well aware of it. Well, how do you mean horrendous? Because there is nothing, Barry, that you can do electronically that isn't going to end up being looked at by somebody somewhere. Absolutely nothing. Now, you may say that doesn't mean much, but if if all your communications, be it from what, what kind of groceries you buy, and if you use a, a club credit card or you use the scanner and then charge it to your, to your we, we have uh, what we call direct uh, payment here. If you do that with the grocery store and then your medical records and then your bank transactions and then um, the drugstore where you get your prescriptions, you put all these things together, it's very easy to get a profile of you. You think it, it doesn't mean much, but you end up with this profile of you and that in the in the wrong hands could could be disastrous. What do you mean the wrong hands, or what well, do you mean disastrous? Let's just let's just think about it for a little bit. You know, in in this world today of of uh, wireless communications, there is so much, and we can can just assume that the organizations with this system called Echelon, Echelon is capable of intercepting all the world's communications. So. The fact that you used a credit card at a certain restaurant, the fact that you bought a certain amount of groceries, a certain type of groceries, the fact that you, you have uh, this type of medication, uh, on and on the list goes. If 
all these things are put together. It doesn't take long to get a, a personality profile on you or anyone else. And, and this can be used for marketing, for instance. It can be used in, in a number of ways. And uh, that, to me, is, is a little scary when these organizations have no watchdog to ensure that, you know, that this sort of thing uh, is not going on. Uh, you know, when you buy your clothes, when you rent videos, where you eat, you know, all these things contribute to a, to a personality profile. And as I said earlier, it is supposedly uh, against the law in your country and mine to do this sort of thing. And if the NSA were ever asked, do they intercept uh, the communications of American citizens for these things, they will, of course, say no. But since the United States and Canada and Britain are all working together and feeding into a common database, these three countries can circumvent their own legislation by asking the other two to do for them what they can't do for themselves. So, you know, you guys in the States will do some things for us here in Canada, and we'll do some things for you, and we feed it all into the database, and, and we pull out from that. And that in itself is, is I think... Uh, not a very ethical or moral way to, to go about it. Who has access to the database? Well, the, the organizations, the SIGINT organizations, such as the NSA in your country, the CSE in mine, the GCHQ in Britain, a DSD in Australia, and also the same in New Zealand. And they feed this information through Echelon in, into a central database from which all the countries can can pull information out of. Now, this is primarily an English language activity. Is it going on in other countries that where English is not the primary language? Oh, it can be done in, in any language, Barry. Language is not not really a barrier. It is for some countries, like like China, for instance. It becomes a bit of a problem there, but it is only a bit of a problem. It, it's it's not a big problem. But what sort of bothers me is you have organizations like the the NSA with a budget of $4 billion doing this sort of thing. Yet I was just reading a couple of weeks ago where a chap in your state of California was arrested for intercepting the telephone conversation between Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, her husband. And had he been sentenced and found guilty of doing that, he could have gone to jail for up to 15 years, which I think is, is a you know, pretty hefty thing. Now, he... he uh, he bargained on that, and he ended up, he's going to be sentenced on May 17th. He will end up with a fine somewhere between two and $20,000, and he could go to jail for up to, to one year. So this is something that an individual is doing, unethically, I must admit, and, and certainly immoral, because he sold this tape to a, a tabloid, I believe. Uh, but he's doing this, getting charged with it, and could go to prison, whereas the NSA does it every day on a regular basis, and just sit back and... and uh, there it is. With no consequences. Absolutely none whatsoever, and, and virtually no watchdog. No, I don't think that's right. What can be done about this? That's, that's the scary part. Uh, I don't know. I, I have a lot of questions, Barry. I don't have a lot of answers. But what I'm trying to do is at least to alert the, the general public that this sort of thing not only is possible, but it is going on. And if you alert the general public and then they start uh, making inquiries, start talking to their congressmen in your country and MPs in mine, maybe perhaps some safeguards can be put in, in place that will at least give us some degree of protection, that we're not going to fall through the cracks and, and be arrested or charged on something that we certainly did not do. Well, you're talking about... Um some pretty serious issues. Have, have you given any thought about what the safeguards would be or could be technologically or sociologically? I would have to say 
better scrutiny of the information that you're getting. Uh, as I said before, getting the, the information is easy. There is, it's, it's so easy to intercept everything from satellites and microwave towers and so on. It is little more difficult to, to filter out the 99.9% .9 of the garbage that you don't want, so you end up with the 0.1%. I think the key is right there. When you get the 0.1%, you have to have some very good uh, safeguard uh, instruments in place right there to ensure that, yes, you've got the right person. Yes, this is valid. Yes, he or she said that. Yes, this requires a further look. Not somebody saying, well, I don't know. No, well, let's just pilot and see what happens. So those safeguards are human. Uh, yes. Employed by humans pursuant to certain standards that we trust uh, the guardians will respect. Yes, yes. And, and when I get a little skeptical is, is when I know that in my country the CSE has a database that has, by definition, information, personal information on Canadian citizens. That's, that's the definition of the database. Personal information on Canadian citizens. This database is not open to scrutiny by the Privacy Commission here in Canada. And the individual that the database is on cannot look at this database for accuracy. So he or she has no way of checking the accuracy. And the scary thing is, in my country, as it is in yours, this database is held indefinitely. So if you do something in, in 1995 and do it again in, in 2050, 55 year, years later, it's still there. So let's focus in on some of this specifically. If a person goes to a grocery store and uh, buys $100 worth of groceries and pays for them on a credit card or a debit card, every item that they purchased goes into the database? It can do, yes. Uh, is that uh, something that can be precluded if a person pays with cash or check? No, you see, there's the thing. If you pay with cash, check can be, can be traced. But if you pay with cash, then no, it can't go in because there's no identifier. A check would be a little more difficult because you'd have to marry the paper check to the electronic transmission. A little more difficult. Cash is the only, the safest way to do that kind of a transmission. Most people today you know, do it by some form of credit card or, or debit card. And, uh, yeah, it, it goes into a database somewhere. So when the, when the credit card uh, is transmitted, yeah. uh, does that transmission also include a list of all of the groceries that you buy for that 100 bucks? Usually. Not necessarily. It depends on where it's going and what it's being used for. But, yes, usually it all goes together. Do we know if that transmission goes back to the producers of the particular kind of food that a, a shopper buys, and that shopper can then be sent uh, commercial propaganda from the producer of the food? It certainly can do. And once, once that list of groceries or that transmission goes out into the ether, it's transmitted from one microwave tower to another, or from a, from a ground station to a satellite, or any other way. Once it's out there, it's there for the taking, for anybody to use uh, as they see fit. When you say it's there for the taking, describe uh, who can take it and what it takes to get it. Well, the, the top end of the scale, Barry, would be the National Security Agency. That they, they have the money, they have the people, they have the technology. They're always cutting-edge technology. And they, I don't want to get into the world of, of ciphers and codes, but they have the capability 
of intercepting everything and breaking it down to whatever it is they're looking for. That's the top end of the scale, 40, uh, $4 billion a year, 40,000 employees plus military. Then you have the bottom end of the scale with the, a guy like you or I would go to a, to an electronic store, buy a cheap scanner for two or 300 bucks, a small modification that you can learn how to do at the library or pick it up on the Internet. So for $500, you can be now intercepting communications in the area that you live in. And... Uh, those are the, the, the top and the low end, and it, it's so easy to do. Uh, most people today have portable telephones. Most people today have cell phones. Most people today uh, have all kinds of, of wireless type of communications from your laptop to whatever. And it, it's, it's very, very easy to get. A few dollars invested, a few hours at your library, and, and you're away. So then you're free to listen to whatever is being passed electronically in the air around us. Well, that's, where, that's where legislation gets great. Because it's, it's so difficult to, to define it, but it's, it goes something like this. You can hear it, but don't listen to it. If you hear it and you don't listen to it, you're okay. But once you start listening to it and using it for something that it was not intended to be used for, then that gets into the, the, the gray area. Now, these things have not been tested in a court of law yet, so it's, it's difficult to say whether that's legal or illegal. Well, Mike, perhaps we should put a pox on everybody who's listening to us talk now, who's not tuned in to the radio or listening to us on the internet. Well, I, I don't know. It, it, it gets it gets kind of interesting. Uh, just as an aside, when you said is this legal or illegal, uh, the the organization I work for once asked our own Justice Department here in Canada to make a, a ruling on on one of our operations. And our Justice Department, after spending months and months and months examining what it is we wanted to do, came back and said there is, quote, a hint of illegality to it. Now, that, I think, is just priceless, a hint of illegality. To me, that's something like being a little bit pregnant. In part two of this archive edition of Radio Curious, recorded in April 1999, we continue our visit with Mike Frost, a retired Canadian spy and author of Spy World, Inside the Canadian and American Intelligence Establishments. I'm Barry Vogel. Mike, tell us about what you had to go through to get this book published. Uh, it was published in Chicago under pseudonyms. It was printed in Chicago. Um, when, when, I, when I talked to, to a journalist friend that I have about it, he had already had a... a uh, a literary agent who he contacted and she in turn contacted me and thought that yes we did have a book here she she uh, did some homework and got a publisher for me called uh, Doubleday in Toronto uh, Doubleday agreed to, to publish the book but to ensure that they could get the book to market and uh, recoup some of their financial expenses they wanted the book written under a false name by a false author uh, they wanted to take absolutely no chances whatsoever of a court injunction uh, preventing the publication of this book. So they sought good legal counsel both in, in Toronto, New York, and, and London, and in Australia. And after a considerable amount of investment, uh, I was given the go-ahead to, to write the book. Now, this book had to be sold to the bookstores throughout Canada and the States and, and Britain uh, simply by saying, this is a book written by this chap called Frank Stone. That was the name I had to use. The book is called Changing of the Guard, and you're going to really want it, so buy a lot. 
But they couldn't say what the book no, was about. No, couldn't say what it was about, and they had to have it distributed from the East Coast to the West Coast, all within a very small window to ensure that uh, some uh, manager of a local bookstore, Chapters, for instance, didn't uh, open the case uh, with the books and see what it was and, and go running off to the media with it before they were all distributed throughout the country. Uh, all the people in in the book, had, we had to use pseudonyms for them all. Myself, when I was going down to Toronto with a manuscript for editing with the, the uh, editor in Toronto, I had to go under a false name, whether I flew or went by train, I had to go under uh, Frank Stone. And it was all kind of James Bondish and sort of fun because it was sort of far away from what I'd actually done to earn a living. When the book was finished and the printing day came, uh, it was decided by Doubleday to print the book in Chicago on a Sunday afternoon. That was done, and then a member of the Doubleday staff from Toronto went to Chicago and escorted the transport of the books from Chicago back to Canada in an 18-wheeler, and it went through the, the border that way. And then the following morning, it, it was out in all the bookstores. It, it was <laughs> kind of a, a neat way to do it. I thoroughly enjoyed that. But it was out in the bookstores under the name of Spy World by Mike Frost. Yes, it was. But it was sold to the bookstores as Changing of the Guard by Frank Stone. Without a clear promotion of what the subject matter of the book is. Absolutely no promotion at all. They couldn't, there was no promotion until the morning that the book was released. So did you take any flack uh, as a result of publishing this book with this information? Uh, depends what you mean by flack. There was a lot of media attention, both on, on the day that it was published and, and as we speak now. Uh, some four years later, five years later, I'm, I'm still getting a lot of media attention. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of, of uh, domestic interest in the book because I, I talked a lot about uh, domestic uh, communications here in Canada that were being intercepted and used for political reasons. And the, the book was, was uh, queried in the House of Commons for for weeks on end during question period uh, on some of the things and some of the problems I raised in the book. Yeah, there was a lot of, of media interest. And I took some flack. Yes, I did. I'd have to admit that. But the, the flack was probably 1%. And the people in my corner saying I was doing a good thing was at least 99%. So that was encouraging for me. Tell us about some of the uh, domestic issues that were being used for political reasons in Canada. Well, I, I don't know if your listeners are aware or not, but in Canada we have the province of Quebec, which wants to, to break away from Canada and be a, a, a sovereign country. And uh, the politics in Quebec is, is a little bit different from the politics in the rest of our country. And, of course, the, the Prime Minister of Canada wants to keep Quebec within Confederation. So of interest to the Canadian government would not be necessarily what the Quebec government is saying, but what the Quebec government is thinking and what the Quebec government is, is uh, communicating to the, uh, the French government. So the, the way to find that out is to intercept the communications of the, the, the government of Quebec, which is what we were doing and uh, probably still are as we speak, to inform the, or keep the, the government informed as to what's going on in Quebec. I'm a very strong federalist, and, and uh, I don't want to see my country broken up, but as far as I'm concerned, Barry, to intercept the communications of a democratically elected party, be them separatist or not, to me is wrong. It's just immoral and it's wrong, and it shouldn't be going on. 
and uh, although I'm a federalist, I, I struggled with even talking about this in my book because I did not want to give the, the separatist government any any fuel for their fire. I, I really did not want to. But by the same token, I felt that the people of the province of Quebec had as much a right to know as the rest of Canada. So I, I printed that, that whole chapter or two on what was going on in, in that area. And that was of great interest uh, when the book came out. Mike, you've indicated uh, that you thought that perhaps I would receive pressure not to air this interview. Yes, I did. Uh, tell me why you say that. Well, you know, in, in going back to how, how the book was, was written and printed and distributed to, to bookstores, it, it is an accepted fact that had the government of the day been made aware of, of my book before it, it was printed and, and uh, gone to bookstores, there was an extremely high probability that there would have been an injunction against it preventing publication, and uh, Doubleday would have lost all their money invested. So looking at that and uh, looking at what has happened since my book came out, uh, governments aren't quite sure exactly what Mike Frost is going to say. I have been saying the same thing over and over again now for five years, and uh, obviously what I'm saying, there's nothing wrong because I'm still here talking about it. But I, I think perhaps uh, I am being watched very closely and I'm being monitored very closely. And should I say something that could be construed as, as being detrimental to the national security or any other thing that perhaps they think in the conversation they could use, there is a chance that, yeah, I, I, could, uh, I could be charged and that could be used in a court of law. And in that case, I would think the governments would not want whatever it was that, that I had said to be made public until a much later date. So that that's my own private feeling, it's my own personal feeling, and uh, I just wanted to draw that to your attention before you went to air. Are you knowingly uh, saying things that you think would cross that line in our no. conversation now? No, absolutely not. I walk a very fine line, and I'm the first to admit that. Uh, uh, it's, it's difficult for me because I have to think about two sentences ahead of what I'm saying. And I walk a very fine line, and I, I'm very confident that what I have said up to now has not crossed the line. So if someone were to contact me as the host and producer of Radio Curious, uh, who should I expect that person to be? I would have no idea in, in your country who, who would be responsible for that. I don't even know, you know if, if it would happen. I just felt that I owed it to you to draw this to your attention so that you would be able to make an informed decision. Mike, you also um, told me that if we were to talk in person, face-to-face, -face, there are things that you would feel comfortable telling me that you don't want to say on the phone. Yes. Uh, would those be things that you would not have a problem with me airing on Radio Curious? Uh Yes and no. The answer to that question is, if you asked me something that I could not answer with a yes or no, or I could not answer with one or two sentences, but would take a long time to sort of paint the picture for you, and, and without saying things definitely, I, I could sort of, I wouldn't say skirt around it, but, but give you a generalized picture. Uh, then it would give you a better understanding of, of where I am and when I feel I have reached the line and refused to cross it. Can you explain that? In other words, I'm not with you on that point. <laughs> well, it, it's difficult to explain. Uh, first of all, I'm more comfortable if eyeball contact. That's one thing I'm more comfortable with. 
second of all, if you ask me a question and I answer it, but the answer isn't what I really meant, it, it's... it's uh, I can see it in your eyes, but I can't hear it in your voice? <laughs> well, no, but, you know, sometimes you say something, and when you're all finished saying it, it's not really what you wanted to say, and it doesn't really mean what you wanted the person to think that it meant, and you want to go back and redo it and explain the situation. I, I guess that it comes down to that, and I'm also more comfortable sitting down in, in my living room or yours with a cup of coffee and, and talking about it than I am live on the air. I'm you know, a little less tense live on the air and even though this this is a is a pre-taped presentation here it's it's still virtually live for me so i i'm a little i weigh my words just a little more with this method. the um australian uh, national uh, ra uh broadcasting company yes. has come to your home and sat with you in your living room and talked a lot yes um why do you think that there is such an intense interest uh, from them and from the British Broadcasting Corporation on this issue? Because the Australian media and the British media has been on the bandwagon for a good many years now presenting to the people of, of both countries the echelon system and its capabilities. And both those countries are, are very keen on on somehow getting some accountability for the DSD in Australia and the GCHQ in Britain. Uh, the Canadian media has not even touched it. They don't seem to be interested in it at all, and to a lesser degree than the media in your country. But the Australians and the British are, are very, very keen on finding out about Echelon. Why do you think there are those cultural differences or those national differences? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I just don't know the answer to that one. I do know that the, the British uh, are, are very sort of private people and then they don't want the, the Americans or even the French to know what, what, what's going on from an economic point of view in the UK. And I think perhaps the Australians have a similar outlook. Do you feel that the result of the Australian uh, and British inquiry into Echelon, where all of this information goes into a central computer that can be accessed by the several English-speaking countries, will make a difference on the availability of the access? The access is, is only to the five key players. The, the five countries that input to this database are the five countries that can, can access this database, no more, no less. And I don't see that ever changing. I really don't. Well, I, that will remain the same, certainly in, in my lifetime. Well, what I'm asking, um, perhaps in other words, is will the effort of the Australian and the British press in interviewing you to expose Echelon temper the uh, collective information that is within Echelon or the availability of governmental authorities to get to it? It'll take a lot more than, than just one interview with Mike Frostberry to get that accomplished. What do you think it would take? It would take considerable pressure from the, the people to the politicians. Uh, that's, that's what I think it would take. Politicians have to be made aware that the people are concerned about this, and let's do something about it. It's certainly going to take a lot more than me and a couple of journalists in Australia and Great Britain. Well, Mike Frost, I again want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close in this program, I'd like to ask you again the question that I asked you last time. And that is, can you tell us of an interesting book or movie that you've 
read or seen lately? Well, you asked me that last time, and I said October Sky. That that was a, a very moving movie for me. And, and uh, since we've been talking, uh, the one that's now coming to mind is, of course, Wag the Dog. I, I enjoyed that that movie too. I thought there was probably a lot more truth to that than fiction, but I say that somewhat tongue in cheek. But I did enjoy the movie immensely. Well, Mike Frost, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure, Barry. This program is the second in a two-part series from the Radio Curious archives with Mike Frost, the author of Spy World, Inside the Canadian and American Intelligence Establishments, originally recorded in April 1999. You'll find part one on our website by searching for Frost. The film Mike Frost recommends is Wag the Dog. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>